0: Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater, your weekly podcast that delves into the cinematic misfires of film history to discover if there is treasure in them thar hills. And this week, uh, we visit uh, what might be seen as an October classic, but we're coming to it as another messed up family film of the 1980s, and that is... 1983's Something Wicked This Way Comes, the Ray Bradbury-Jack Clayton collaboration-slash-adaptation developed by Disney Pictures, and an unfortunate failure, critically well-received, but uh, did not find any traction at the box office. Uh, but an interesting film nonetheless for a variety of reasons but I as always am your amiable co-host Tim and joining me is
1: Catherine
0: and we have had big life stuff going on we missed last week's episode but for very very good reasons I assure you our podcast friends uh, but we should be back to normal schedule at least for a little bit maybe few things going on around the holidays but we're excited to be back and talk about this one which in many ways uh, at least in my opinion is a a pretty forgotten film of the early 1980s unlike some of the other ones that we've talked about so as I mentioned this is a a 1983 film directed by Jack Clayton um, who is probably best remembered for doing the Gregory Peck uh, version of Moby Dick Uh, which for many years was considered the kind of definitive uh, film version of Moby Dick, which is a difficult story to adapt in the best of times. Uh, But Ray Bradbury had a hand in that. He met Jack Clayton on set, thought the world of him, and uh, decided to bring a film project that he'd originally started with Gene Kelly in the 1950s back, right? So um, the, the genesis of this project was he wrote a screenplay to work with this guy gene kelly uh and and do a project together that never happened so he took the story and adapted it and turned it into a novel uh what's generally referred to as the second book in his uh what's the name of the town green hills is that what it is or uh,
1: um green green town i thought
0: yeah yeah I, I green, town. The, uh, green town green town Right, Greentown, Illinois, which is an obvious stand-in for Bradbury's uh, hometown of Waukegan. He uh, developed it into the the second novel, sort of a pseudo sequel to *Dandelion Wine*, and um, and and released it that way. But was always interested, keen on seeing it on the big screen. Um, it is a fairly cinematic idea, right? the The core of the story is really quite simple it is about a traveling carnival that comes to a small town and havoc is wreaked upon the populace by this carnival which seemingly has the ability to grant your deepest darkest wishes but of course for a price which revisiting it now um it made me wonder because one of my my favorite stephen king stories is needful, needful things. things yeah and, and this really is in that exact same ballpark. And, and we have seen, you know, it's a common sort of story thread that the devil or some you know, dark being arrives and delivers you everything you ever wanted. But there's always a cost, an unexpected cost that uh, takes that, that rosiness away from you. And in this case, uh, that holds true. But I've always enjoyed Needful Things. And, uh, you know, the film adaptation, not so much. It's it's just fine. But the original, you know, King novel was, was one of the earliest King ones I read. And I don't remember why. I think it was just available at our local library. It was one of the King ones that never got checked out because it was pretty long, I think. And uh, so I read that one when I hadn't, uh, you know, fairly early in my Stephen King reading career. But so it's a similar story it's set in the early 1900s so it has a very sort of early early americana flair to it uh and and a lot of style right but unlike some of the other films that we've talked about this film is basically a straight-up horror film yeah it is it is a movie that is intended to be scary and not kid scary Right, which is sort of what Little Monsters tries to do in its own weird way, like we talked about before. But this, this one is, is actually scary. scary movie. <laughs> yeah, this one's really, legitimately trying to be scary, uh, which is, is pretty cool. So Clayton was a, a classically trained director. Uh, you know, he's not a, a kid's film director by any stretch. He is, uh, you know, he had worked on the Moby Dick film. Um, many people probably know him because he did the. Uh, a lesser adaptation, but an okay one, but the Robert Redford uh, version of Great Gatsby. Uh, he also directed that, which was, you know, again, not the greatest version of it, but a solid one for the time. And, uh, you know, he he's a, a good director. He's fairly straightforward. There's not a ton in this film that I would consider exceptional, but it is uh, pretty cool. So um, I guess let's... Go ahead and dive right in. We'll talk a little bit of the um, the reviews, the reactions to this. So as I mentioned, it was kind of a box office failure. Uh, Disney originally envisioned a budget of around $15 million, but they were so dissatisfied with the end result that was handed in by Clayton that they spent another $5 million uh, to rescore the film. Uh, James Horner is the uh the listed or the credited um uh, <laughs> uh musician for the film he he did all of the the music for the movie but he was not the original person to do the music and um they they rescored it they they reshot numerous scenes which you can kind of tell there's some wig work with the the two young boys you can kind of tell some reshot stuff Uh, And basically rebuilt the entire thing. And that has led to, and and even at the time, a lot of people feel that there's a pretty strong clash in the movie between what tries in many ways to be a fairly straightforward coming-of-age story and something much, much darker than that. Um, And being somewhat familiar with the Bradbury novel, it's been a very long time since I read it, um, that book is, is quite dark. Uh, as many of Bradbury's, uh, you know, sort of works tended to go, uh, he he could be, when he wanted to, quite frightening, and and this one is, is is certainly one of those projects, but Disney of course is known for their family films, and you can tell that there are times when they they punched it up a little bit to try and make it a bit more a bit more palatable, and unfortunately, it seems like that tonal clash was something that uh, didn't do much to help it so critical reaction uh, is pretty positive Uh, it's got about 60 percent on the tomato meter again a lot of those are recent re-reviews um so i i I think the original critical reception was actually a bit higher Uh, people seem to enjoy it um so i didn't pull a ton of them because many of them were, were basically the same but roger ebert had this to say he said in its descriptions of autumn days in its heartfelt conversations between father and son In the unabashed romanticism of its evil carnival, and even in the perfect rhythm of its title, this is a horror movie with elegance. Um, Which is pretty strong praise from from Roger Ebert. Uh, Notably, Roger Ebert was not a horror guy. Um, He wasn't like a
1: genre guy. I never got that impression.
0: No, he, he could certainly bend into the genre and understand, you know, what made it work and what made it not work. But especially at this point in what was going on in cinematic horror, the early 1980s was the, the rise of the slasher film, which he was notably and notoriously down on. Uh, he felt slasher films were a, a debasement and that they were pandering to the worst aspects of, of human behavior in many ways. And and so for him to think that a horror film had some merit was rare in and of itself. Like I said, he could see it from time to time, but he was certainly not a person looking for those kinds of experiences.
1: This does have a very old Hollywood horror feel to it though.
0: It does. Yes. The the scares are not so much jump scares or gore scares. They're very much it's it's creep, right? It's it's the the encroaching dread of the inevitable.
1: Which like, if you've ever seen The it. Innocence that makes a lot of sense.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah even something like night of the hunter right which you know i would consider another you know, peak horror film of classic hollywood you know it's it's really just more about this unstoppable force that's chasing you which is why i think i i really resonate with you know of the slasher genre it's the halloween films uh the good ones uh, of which there are two ish <laughs> um it, that's why i, I like them is because they understand that Terror can be generated simply by having a thing that you don't understand chasing you, right? And and there's something very primal about that. And this film touches upon that as well. Um, and so it it certainly has some excellent qualities. But Ebert was was very positive. Uh, the Variety staff, which there was no attached specific critic, but just Variety. Uh, says, possibilities for a dark child's view fantasy set in rural America of yore are visible throughout the 20 million production, but various elements have not entirely congealed into a unified achievement. Um, so this is really touching upon the, if there was a thread that was common in the negative reviews, this was really it. Is that the film, because it seems to be fighting with itself internally about its tone, right are we going to go dark are we going to go frightening or are we going to have this sort of rosy look back at americana that it never really sort of congeals into a single cohesive unit right it doesn't really know what it wants to be and that was the the common thread throughout the entire thing and again given the production history that makes a ton of sense because that's exactly what happened disney was unsatisfied with the dark tone and they wanted to see it brought up but i mean they still had All of this footage that was very dark, right? I mean, some of the later scenes in this as as dark as stalking the children uh, in an attempt to to get them or uh, fighting with Jason Robard's father character.
1: And Disney wasn't in any position to be throwing out footage that they could use for something.
0: (laughs) No, no. They had invested too much money in this project at this point. Uh, $15 for a film like this in the early 1980s was, was no small amount of money. And there are a decent number of special effects in this. Um, you know, they're dated, uh, a lot of the, uh, the creeping mist and smoke stuff is pretty typical early 1980s Disney, but, um, it's it's an investment, right? They spent money on this movie and they felt that they couldn't just walk away from that. Uh, a lot of the production value reminded me a little bit, uh, and I'm sure this is part of the era as well of uh, like the journey of Natty Gann, right? Mm-hmm. These, these feel kind mm-hmm. of like in that same, you know, we're we're looking at this era in in American history and telling a fairly difficult story within that frame. But this of course has all the compounding elements of, of Ray Bradbury stories, which are all about loss and, relationships between fathers and sons and um you know the darkness that hides just around the corner that you can't quite see
1: the fear of of the unknown
0: yes uh bradbury was a very much i mean it's remarkable to say given that he wrote a book like fahrenheit 451 but he was very much a status quo guy like brad bradbury was very much afraid of the possibility of the future and wanted to see things more often than not stay where they are. Um, progress, but slow and steady progress, kind of thing. Uh, very famously, I mean, Bradbury was a, a notorious Luddite. He refused to fly. Um, he, he hated most modern conveniences. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he just didn't have much faith in the progress of technology. He saw, in his mind, all of the dark places that it could go if we weren't careful. And that's what he focused on. And and this movie has a tinge of that. Um, Although it it doesn't really have any technological elements. It's more the supernatural side of things here. Um, So another semi-positive review here from Janet Maslin in the New York Times. Uh, A lively, entertaining tale combining boyishness and grown-up horror in equal measure. Um, Which I think is, is fairly apt, right? This film is trying to combine... You know, something like Stand By Me about an adventure between friends uh, into something that does turn, much like that film does, but turns into something terrifying at the same time. Yeah. Um, And then I did pull one modern review from uh, Slash Film, which is a a site that I, I read fairly frequently. And so Rob Hunter on SlashFilm said, it's a reminder of when kids' movies were about more than farts and wisecracking animals, and its, visual retai- its visuals retained their power to unsettle and unnerve. I like that. Um, and that's, that, I, I too, I think is, is apt. So the failure of this film was not necessarily in its execution in every way, nor was it in its reception, but it failed to sort of ignite with audiences. Audiences did not connect with this movie, perhaps, uh, you know, Disney at this point was was pretty terrible at everything. They were terrible at marketing, they were terrible at production. Uh, they were just kind of falling apart at the seams. Uh, we're still four years away from Little Mermaid. Which brought the company back from the brink.
1: Um, this was even before. Was this around the time or before Eisenberg took over? This would have been right in that time period. Mm-hmm.
0: Because I want to say Eisner took over in 84.
1: Sure, Eisner, sorry. Um,
0: I knew who you meant. Um, yeah, Eisner took over in September 84. So about a year after this film came out. Which is, is generally when things began to turn around. So, <clears throat> so another film from the, the dark times of Disney.
1: But, Some of my favorite, um, but they're they are tough sells. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I mean, there's there's still quality films in here, uh, much like this one, but it, they they were not the the media juggernaut that they are now. Um, they they were not the end all be all of entertainment for everyone ever that they are now. So uh, it was certainly a different time. But, uh, dear listener, if that sounds like a film you'd like to see about two young scrappy boys fighting against a dark carnival in the early 1900s in America, then I would pause and see if you can track down a copy of this film, which unfortunately is remarkably difficult. Uh, yeah. I was, uh, I was shocked that uh, this is not on Disney+, which... Could be a a rights issue, but I mean this this is a full on Disney production.
1: Everything is on Disney Plus. Where is this movie?
0: Yeah, I mean this is it was one of the last films made under I think it was Walt Disney Productions was the Mm -hmm. banner, Um, and then they then they changed it to Walt Disney Pictures after this. Uh, which is now the, the sort of film production arm of the main, you know, Disney company. They still have Buena Vista for their more adult fare, and they had Hollywood Pictures for a while. You know, like they've they've changed up the the studio names and stuff, but uh, Touchstone, whatever. But so maybe it's related to that, or maybe it's just this is a straight horror movie, and they don't want it on Disney Plus for little kids to find, which is kind of more my thinking. But I, I don't know. There is a DVD version. Uh, this was an—I want to say this was released in the early two thousands, just as as DVDs were coming out. These came out in the same wave as like the Black Hole DVD release, you know, which was another dark times of Disney. Mm. Um, you know, they they released uh, Black Cauldron around that time period, um, and and so it came out around then. And you can find that for you know about eight bucks, but it's you know still you're getting DVD quality from you know, coming from who knows where. So that's that's really the only way to get a hold of a physical copy. And as far as I know, it is not really streaming anywhere. Um, but it's it's worth hunting down if you can. I, I, I do believe that. Um, so uh, we're going to go ahead and launch into our film debrief. So if you want to pause and come back after you've seen the film yourself, feel free. But uh, let's go. Let's get in. So the film uh, opens with... Uh, frankly, some some really good night footage of a train, mm-hmm. right? Because the whole film, this entire movie is, is premised and built around the idea of a traveling carnival, which is something that we don't really have anymore. There are still people that do this, of course, um, but it's, it's not the sort of relatively well-known phenomenon that it was, I would say, prior to the 1960s in the United States, I would agree with that because um, I've never
1: been to one I mean this is something even like, like I this. have no context for what a traveling carnival was like
0: really even by by the time that we were born you know your your traveling carnivals you know we would get one occasionally that would come through uh, we had like state fairs of larger town. so mm-hmm. you know
1: we had more context in that regard but nothing nothing like this
0: you might see the Barnum and Bailey circus come through town, you know, one of those larger productions that would be mobile and sort of set up shop and, uh, you know, rent out an arena in a a nearby town and, and set up, but not the classic idea of the train pulling into the train tracks in your town, unloading right there next to those tracks and setting up a carnival that everybody could attend for a week, a couple of days, and then putting right back onto the train and taking off. Um, it's It was a, a sort of unique thing of the early, you know, 1900s in America. Uh, people were interested in exotic, um, you know, displays and, and all, you know, the, the colloquially known freak shows. You know, this this was a, a sort of accepted thing. And you knew when the carnival was coming to town a little bit in advance. You saved your money. You got your tickets. Uh, everybody, you know, it was a, a little burst of life in the humdrum goings of, you know, the rural America now i I want to pause here briefly and say that I think one of the reasons why this setting works so well for a story like this is because you know even if we don't have the cultural connection point anymore to be like, "Ah, oh, I remember those days I think as as Americans, which is our perspective, we do have a sort of frame of reference for this kind of thing right mm-hmm. the the small town life and the the various as you said, fairs and, you know, church picnics and and all of this kind of stuff. Like, you know, if you live in rural America, you kind of understand what this is like and what a big deal it can be. Yeah. But I I also connect this now with what could be one of my favorite television shows ever made. And that of course is Carnival. Um, Yes. And absolutely – brilliant early 2000s hbo television series that was killed well before its time
1: just when um, it was getting good actually. just
0: when it was getting amazing um last
1: if, few episodes of that show were just what could have been oh my god
0: titanic i look back at that show that cast the the Production value. Uh, Carnival was was about a cast of characters on one of these traveling carnivals. They they were just this misfit band of people, this sort of early found family idea that's become so typical in in you know sort of popular media now. But. A lot of the same elements that are going on here—a supernatural tinge to it. There's something going on in the background. These characters are united by some sort of force. What is that force? There's the opposing, darker individual that's trying to unravel everything. It's it's just fantastic, and something wicked is the, uh, this way comes hits all those buttons like every single one of those buttons in in a condensed form it's obviously a different approach but it's it's certainly of a piece with uh that piece of media which i I adore and perhaps i was primed to like it because i watched this movie a
1: ton yeah you can't ever really tell where you got the interest for something (laughs) it's like what did i
0: like first this movie or carnival it's the the Ouroboros thing man it's like it just just Continually eating its own tail of media, I suppose. But um so so this movie opens with these this train footage and, and sort of sets the scene. It's dark, it's in shadow, the, the moon is directly over the train, which I'm sure is a special effect, but it looks really good. Um and and so the the train is is coming, right? The the whole sort of thing, both in the book and in the film, is that wherever this carnival goes a storm follows close on its heels. And, and that of course is, is what kicks off the story because the, I guess you could say the herald of this carnival is a lightning rod salesman. You know, the, the film opens with these, these beautiful rolling Hills shots of a small town, you know, it's, it's fall, the, the red leaves turning, uh, the, the, you know the the cars the dirt roads you know it's 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 very evocative of you know this midwestern american life uh we do get a bit of voiceover which for the most part is unnecessary i, I really don't think
1: yeah i wasn't to be there i wasn't crazy about the voiceover i don't feel like it added very much um and ever since i i remember david fincher saying that if your voiceover is necessary, like if you can't remove it and still follow the movie, then it's bad. <clears throat> so yeah. So yeah. usually when I, I listen to a voiceover, I'm like, does the movie need this? Does this really have to be here? And I don't know. I don't think it does.
0: No, this this feels like a Disney request, you know, to make it more of one of those more accessible You know, ah, I remember a time because what this what this voiceover does is diffuse all of the tension in the film, because if the young boys or the young boy in this case, uh, Will Holloway survives and we know he survives because he's telling us the story, then what do we have to be scared of? so I can't imagine if you were legitimately trying to make something that could potentially have stakes and scare that you would deflate that tension by having the sort of rosy narration over the top of it. Uh, Two, I don't think it works because he's looking back on this event as mostly a positive, which is weird, is weird given the circumstances. Right. Um, Because while things, you know, do work out, there's a tremendous amount of loss in this film. So it, it doesn't really feel it doesn't fit with the tone of the film to open in that way. Um it's not exceptionally bad, it's not anything to ruin it, but it's completely unnecessary. And and we could certainly just push into the town and go um so we're quickly introduced to our two main characters right so this film follows two young boys who are neighbors they live next to each other they've grown up together um uh, the the toe-headed will holloway and the black as night headed jim nightshade
1: um, <laughs> i love <because> the names <laughs>
0: They're yeah i mean they're bradbury names <laughs> all the way um you know holloway and nightshade um the film you know establishes them very quickly as, as being good kids kind of troublemakers uh, nightshade more than Holloway I suppose but, but it's, it's like uh, troublemaker
1: a li- in the Disney sense of the word troublemaker right
0: right and it's it's a troublemaker in that like again early, 19s America- early no 1900s mischievous scamp. Uh, you mischievous scamp you ran in the hallways again didn't you? Oh, <laughs> no, you, a, you you drew a picture of your teacher that was unflattering how dare you sir but the you know the town obviously knows them and and loves them kind of thing they we uh, get introduced very quickly to the the main players of the story uh they're very famous there are uh, sort of four additional characters that have interactions with the carnival over the course of the film: the barber, the bar owner or cigar store owner, I think he owns a cigar store uh, shop, um the bar, and um the teacher right um, <laughs> and, and each one of these people, you know, we're sort of getting a little bit of background on from the voiceover narration and where they came from and who they were. Uh, and then we're introduced very quickly to really, I mean, in some ways, the main character of the film, right? Like the boys are certainly the central component, but the, I would say most of the emotional heft and the main arc in the film, like the person who goes through change is uh, Will Holloway's dad. Charles Holloway, played here by Jason Robards. And I, I guess let's talk briefly about the main conflict of the film and the book. Uh, this was, was the central conflict of the book here. And yeah, that with
1: Bradbury, is, you're always getting what was in the book.
0: <laughs> right. Um, you know, again, Bradbury kind of fell out with Clayton during this project because Clayton had a guy come in to do script polishing. Probably just on set kind of script polishing stuff. And Bradbury took it as a huge insult. And, uh, you know, they they kind of fell out of favor with each other during the project as well. But a remarkable amount of Bradbury's original uh, sort of story, if if the novel is his, you know, ver- ideal version of it, um, is in here, right? Some things get changed. There's like a hot air balloon sequence at the end of the book with the dust witch that isn't in here, but it's like fine. <laughs> it's yeah, really okay. we didn't need that. Um now, one significant change here is that in this one, Will Holloway's dad is the town librarian. Uh, you know, Robart's character is the man who runs the library, so he's knowledgeable, he's worldly, even though they live in this tiny town. But in the novel, he was the janitor at the library, right? He was not the librarian, so he, he was not a person of status, uh, which I think was uh, kind of an interesting choice because the, the Charles Holloway character, his major arc is that he is very old to be the father of a young boy. Yeah. Uh, obviously he is a, a late life parent, uh, married his wife, uh, you know, or, or they had trouble conceiving. We don't really get any of that background, but ultimately he's an old man. And as a result, he feels like he can't, by the very nature of his age, be a good father to Will. And he feels like he's done him a disservice because he's an old man. And so it's it's an interesting sort of central conflict for a character to, to have them be wrestling with their old age in regards to being a father, which, quite frankly, is not really something that we address as a society anymore. Like, nobody really cares. We've got lots and lots of instances of older couples having younger kids if anything it's becoming i was more free
1: yeah we kind of recommend people wait a while before they have children
0: (laughs) right it's it's not weird but i I suppose at this point in american history um you know you had your kids early you had your kids young maybe it kept having them i don't know (laughs) but but it's he's legitimately pained by this situation like it is something that he feels drives him apart and I think that's one of the things about the movie that I really like is that it does it does kind of point back to a time when parents and children's relationships were quite different than they are now. Um These, you know, we talk about '80s latchkey kids all the time. Like these aren't latchkey kids. Like these are kids that live in their own homes. (laughs) These are kids that weren't ever given a key because they weren't supposed to come home. Just stay outside, and when you get home, I'll be in bed, and I might check
1: on you. I might. By the time you're ten, you you should have your own job.
0: (laughs) Right. It's just this completely different take on how children and parents interact, where they're they're basically alone uh you know in in Jim Nightshade's case right so we've got Will Holloway he's got a, a basically nuclear family a mom and a dad even though they're they're older but Jim Nightshade is um he's in a, a, a single parent home right which of course at this time would have been heretical to to not have a dad uh we find out over the course of the story that his dad was basically a drunk uh he was you know an alcoholic who struggled to make ends meet and he just kind of took off or at least that's the story. So nightshade just lives with his mom who seems you know the first time we see her it, it's played by Diane Ladd so she even though she's a small character in the film she does a, a great job with it but the first time we see her she's in a nightgown she's stroking a cat she's got her hair up you know it looks like she's well, I guess we find out she's out on the prowl for a man. Like, that's mm. what she's doing. Um, and so she is, is dressing up and, and trying to to go out on the town in the evenings when Jim is you know, at home. And, and she should probably be taking care of him. But she's going out to try and find, uh, you know, a, a love interest. In that day and age,
1: father. what she was doing was taking care of her son to her. because
0: By finding a, a man to provide. Yeah. Yeah, so very strange, which I, I found it, honestly, in re it at this time, a lot of these little minute details I had not really sort of recorded for posterity in my brain, but I found it ironic that the barber was constantly, like, on the prowl for women, right? Like, that's what the barber character wants. That's his his wish, is to have exotic women, and you know, fawn over him. But it's like, if he just wants companionship, like, there's literally a lady who's in this obviously small town is like stepping out constantly trying to find anybody that'll sort of pay attention. And it seems
1: like those little things are, are pointing at the, the larger concern that these people don't really need the things that they think they need. They don't really want the things they think they want.
0: Right. In many ways, this is a story about people who have placed value on the wrong things in their lives and ignored the successes that they should be paying attention to. Um, so I, I think one of the best examples of this is the, the former football star, right? So um, we actually have an actor here who is, uh, he only has one arm and one leg. And so we we find out he walks with a crutch. He We first see him, he is uh, sweeping the front of the bar. So we find out that he's either the owner of the bar or he's the bartender. I, I presume the owner of this local bar but he was a, a former football star who was in some kind of accident uh, maybe a car accident something like that and uh, and lost two of his limbs and so he he lost the ability to play football and so he's constantly you know i i want to you know i want to be able to run again and all these things again perfectly understandable but yet i look at him and i say but you, you own your own business you're beloved in the town like you know why focus on this you know relatively small component uh, of your life and everybody seems to be in that place of course one of the guys is super greedy right he just wants money their teacher who is is now sort of painted as a vile looking old woman used to be beautiful so she I love that poor actress
1: back. what's her name yeah, <laughs> i
0: i know i've i've seen her in tons of things she was one of those people that Excuse me. Sort of showed up uh, all the time. Uh, was it Mary, uh, Grace? Mary, Grace, Mary Canfield. Grace Canfield? Yeah, um, she was on the Andy Griffith show. But there, I remember even there, her, she played Thelma Liu's ugly cousin. You know, which she it's always
1: like, played the the uh, the angry maid in in Disney films. Like she was in Pollyanna. She played That's right. angry She's Angelica
0: maid. in Pollyanna. That's right. I completely forgotten. Yeah, just you know a woman who unfortunately sort of got known for really just having sort of very unique facial features, having
1: a sour Uh, face. She could make an angry face like nobody's business. She was a beautiful woman, but man, she could pull a sour face. But if you look up like pictures of her, just, you know, smiling like a normal person, she was gorgeous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those, you know, I, I guess one of those classic Hollywood, um, you know the ability to make someone look really unattractive, even though that's absolutely not what you got. Um, so you know we sweep through the town, we figure out all this stuff. You know Will and Jim are lifelong friends. Their their rooftops basically line up with each other, with a little limb in between, so they can travel back and forth to each other's rooms. Uh, sort of a, a brilliant setup for for two friends to be able to hang out with each other. But as, as I said, you know the the carnival's on its way, but in at at the leading edge of the storm that the carnival brings with it is uh, a lightning rod salesman, uh, Tom Fury, which again, great name. Great name. And so he, uh, is an obvious, he's a snake oil salesman, right? He's, he's selling them on the benefits of lightning rods, uh, which are, you know, okay, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Lightning rods can be valuable. And, and I suppose at, at this time in history, not having your house struck by lightning would be a good thing, but sure. he, uh, convinces Jim Nightshade to put a lightning rod on his house. Right. And, and Jim feeling like he has to be the man of the house. He's got to be the guy in charge to keep everything oh. safe. He spends what little pocket money he has, uh, or what little pocket money his family has. He pulls it out of like a coffee can, And buys one and then mounts it to the chimney of the house, which, of course, becomes relevant later. And so Tom Fury is telling him all the stories about, uh, you know, these sat atop the Egyptian pyramids, you know, all these these wild stories that appeal to these uh, small town boys that haven't seen much of the world. And uh, then the story really just kicks off, right? That's that's all the, the setup that we get, which I think is refreshing. That we're not sort of dawdling around, like we're going to get to the business pretty fast. Uh, that night as he's closing up the library, uh, Charles Holloway uh, comes home and he starts finding flyers for the carnival in the street and gets a glimpse of who we will come to know as Mr. Dark, uh, distributing them, just walking through the town, <laughs> littering basically, uh, littering everywhere. He picks up one and then has a vision Um, This is a film that that plays with perception a lot. Uh, The idea of of seeing things. um, And it has some interesting effects to get there. But he's passing, I guess, the the mortuary in town. uh, The funeral home. And he sees a a gray coffin. And it converts into... Like
1: an an ice ice block. block. It looks like a block
0: of ice. It looks like a block of ice with a body inside a beautiful woman. And she has a distinctive red ring on her her hand. uh, Which we will you know come to understand later but uh let me get a one thing i think this film does really well is the the familial conversations um and this i i have to believe are all remnants of of what would be the original bradbury script um because i'm not the biggest ray bradbury Fan. I don't I don't obsess about Bradbury's works. Uh, I think he was a, a masterful storyteller. He he hit at just the right time with just the right perspective to tell some really interesting stories. Right. I mean, um, you know, just just like me, you know, you've read Sound of Thunder with a group of freshmen dozens and dozens of times and that story still works. Despite the fact that it's it's kind of flawed and its execution in some ways, it it certainly
1: Bradbury is very lax and yeah he
0: just he has this really good tone and one of the things that I think he establishes well is is character dialogue and relationships and you know the the Jim and and you know they're sitting around the fire and and he's you know the dad is is thinking about. All of these things that he can't do. Right. And we get this nice dissolve into another conversation with him and his wife where he's like, you know, how bad is it that I, I can't play baseball with my own kid? Right. I'm, I'm too old. And, and we also find out that he's got kind of a heart condition as well. So it's not just that he's old, but he's old and, and ostensibly frail. Right. He has a condition that prevents him from pushing himself too hard in the way that a, a kid might demand. And so like those conversations work really well they're brief they're they're to the point you know they don't beat around the bush they don't meander um, but they also feel very much like real conversation Uh, again I, i hate to sort of harp on you know something so so vague as a term but they just so much of film conversation even in these quiet moments is amped up right it's 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 hyper stylized and this doesn't feel that way. And it's, it's delivered exceptionally well too. I don't know. That's, that's kind of like my, my take on it. And that holds true. Like some of the conversations between Jim or between Will and his dad throughout the entire movie, they just feel good. And um, I enjoyed them immensely. Um, But after, you know, we kind of get a little bit more exposition on those topics we cut back to Tom Fury, who is making his way out of town, and he comes across the woman in the block of ice, but instead of continuing on his way, as Will's father did, he goes in to take a closer look, and then we, we cut away, uh, presumably because he's been uh, ensnared. Uh, but the, uh, the beautiful woman I, I suppose we, we should mention uh, is uh, the Dust Witch, that is her her title um but she's played here by pam greer right uh second time that Mm -hmm. we've had a a pam greer film in our our failure piece sites uh in this one she has almost no dialogue uh she is basically here to be beautiful which she excels at but uh she here is is the temptress for the most part she uh is the one who, who lures these people in with her, her various wiles so that the carnival can, can take advantage of them. So then we uh, cut to later that evening. Uh, we don't know what happens exactly to Tom Fury, but the train comes in, and both of the boys have tried to stay up for, uh, for the event, um, which uh, Will fails at. He falls asleep, but Jim wakes him up and uh, they go out to watch the train come in which uh, i don't know what do you think about this sequence um you know as as the train arrives and the boys kind of steal through the forest to see it
1: i really liked it i like that it's very dramatic and it's very i mean it's kind of exciting and it's mysterious because we don't really know at this point in the film that it's going to be horror yet um some spooky no. things have happened but nothing outwardly creepy So I kind of like that this wasn't played for, you know, necessarily being horrific or scary or exciting. You're not really sure what's going to happen. I would say until some of the stuff with the statues, um, that maybe then it starts to get a little bit scary. But even still, uh, I like that it's you know, kind of windswept and, and loud. And of course I like trains. I, I just think that it's, it's a cool idea. It's a cool vibe. It's, it's very weirdly romantic for an era of American life that I never experienced. And I wonder how movies are able to do that so well.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, this is a film that does, it, it captures this era very convincingly. Um, even even if it is not exact or precise it has the feel it evokes the feel of a time period of this time period very well um in a convincing and, way and it feels very cohesive in its visual presentation
1: and they definitely kind of hit the appeal of uh particularly old theme parks and amusement parks with just the lighting and you know the um the kind of painted motifs that are all over you know, the the sets and the items that the carnival brings in with it. It's just got such a great design. And uh, it was a really nice set, especially with the boys wandering through the carnival after it's set up.
0: Yeah, and, and I guess that's really the first sign that something supernatural is going on. Uh, as you mentioned, the statues, uh, you know, Horner's score here really ramps up. Uh, like it becomes cacophonous and loud and, and sort of screeching as the the train you know comes to a stop and and you know i imagine it's supposed to mirror at least be evocative of a trains you know brakes kicking in kind of thing but it it serves to to sort of unnerve the boys and and then of course they they come through a graveyard to get to the, the train and the uh, as you mentioned the angel statues kind of fracture and and light starts pouring out of them implying that something evil has passed a sacred and holy place. But as the train arrives, the carnival is immediately set up, right? Yeah. Nobody gets out, nobody does anything. Um, there's this really great sort of camera pullback shot, which I think now would sort of be done in, or, or executed in kind of a Fincher-esque fashion that the camera would in a single shot just sort of pull back through all of the alleyways of the, the carnival. And we would see it sort of coming into form. And in this one, they kind of just, they do some basic sort of fade in special effects on it. Um, but basically the carnival is, is ready to go before they ever even, you know, see the train really come to a stop.
1: And that's kind of nice because, you know, as I understand it, that's exactly how it happened. You know, they would come and they would set up in the night and they would have it ready for the next day for everybody to, mm-hmm. to visit. So it probably did feel a bit like no one had any part in setting it up, even though we know, you know those people worked around the clock doing this for right. a living, um, yeah. But yeah.
0: But so the the carnival arrives, uh, Mr. Holloway unable to sleep is is working late at the library and and he kind of feels the change. That's that's one thing I like about this film is that the characters are not oblivious to what's going on. They can't describe it, they can't put their finger on it, but something is wrong, at least the ones who are willing to to pay attention, I suppose. And and so Holloway walks out and, and the, the tenor of the town has changed, right? He doesn't even know why necessarily, but he can feel it sort of in the wind, uh, which is cool. And it, it does increase that that creep factor, right? The, the, the danger that you can't quite quite see. Constantly.
1: And it helps position Jason Robards as a main character even further because he isn't like the rest of the people in the town. He actually senses a bit more danger than anybody else does. Right.
0: Yeah, he's especially aware, which we do find out a little bit later, that his father, who was a minister in the town, had had a run-in with this seemingly same carnival, uh, you know, 20 to 30 years prior in the late 1800s. And, uh, And he wrote down his experiences, which, of course, being a librarian, he can provide us with the, let me pull out this, essential book and go through the the details with you boys which is is cool but so he arrives at home and will has has made it back from his experience and is waiting up for him and there are a lot of really good discussions uh about evil there's a really good conversation later in the movie where will basically asks his dad like you know am i good am i a good person um with the background that good people can usually make it through very difficult situations like these And you know just the way that those conversations again are handled are just exceptional. Um, it's not the kind of stuff that you would see in, in a kids movie but it's really not the kind of stuff you even see in movies made for adults. you know you would you would have a, a pithy saying, a nice quote you know you'd have something that would sort of fill this in but really there's a lot of characters who say, well I, I don't really know.
1: Most movies and, tackle that sort of thing with a hang in their baby poster.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right you know they just don't have much much tact and nor do they leave you know things open to complexity right you know i i, I guess i'm thinking a little bit of you know more modern films you know you noah Baumbach movies like marriage story where you know there are no villains there's no clear good and bad it's just people struggling to deal with complicated ideas and while this film does have that framework of good versus evil, you know, good must prevail, there's still this complicated framework in the middle of it where there's a lot of characters saying, I don't really know how to fix any of these things, and I don't really know what's right or wrong, you know, and it sort of reinforces another sort of Bradbury thing, which is going with your gut, right? Like a lot of Bradbury's main characters rely on, on instinct, Right, knowing that yeah. something is inherently, instinctually wrong or bad. Um, you know, oh, it's even, interesting. You know, he
1: was a science fiction author, but he still sort of relied on that idea of human intuition always being smarter than whatever technology we could possibly throw at us. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know that that makes sense for his his work.
0: Yeah, and and uh, I think it it especially fits here. You know, this is the kind of thing that you you want them to because the film is showing you that yes these things are there's something wrong here you know but yet at the same time we can all be pulled in um so the boys go to the carnival the next day along with the rest of the town it's bustling there are lots of people there we start seeing some of the familiar faces we've been introduced to getting their wishes right so um the bar owner who uh, you know is doesn't have an arm and a leg he wins the uh what is it like the the hammer, uh, the hammer swing where he you know dings yeah. the bell with the hammer, and then we're introduced to another sort of central feature of the original story, which is the Hall of Mirrors. So um, I forget its exact name. I think it's just Dark's Hall of Mirrors or something like that. But it's it's obviously magical. There's something special about it. And all of the people that um, win, they get invited into the Hall of Mirrors, and, and something happens to them inside. And so the boys, as they're standing there, see their teacher come out, uh, dazed, right? And Ms. Foley is is sort of out of sorts. She doesn't seem right. She mentions something about a, a nephew coming to she visit her. She also
1: seems which, really nice, which is weird because <laughs> she's right.
0: not she's, usually nice <laughs> she's being very nice to uh to our heroes but the hall of mirrors is is painted as this very very special place um but i, I don't know if you saw it but there's, it's obviously that it's covered in some sort of like a aluminum reflective uh, uh paper and, and mm-hmm. there's like pieces of it coming off all over the place. Like, <laughs> yeah, I saw some bubbles,
1: like air bubbles in it. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's
0: a little bit of like, uh, you know, low, low rent stuff going on here. But in some ways, it might be intentional that this is, uh, by the outside appearances, just a, a regular carnival. But yet, when you go too deep into it, that's, you know, where the problems arise. And so we're kind of hopping around a bunch during the scene. The boys are just kind of, you know, flitting around throughout the thing, but then we we cut back. Oh, I guess we forgot to mention they did have a a run-in with the dust witch. She was inside one of the the carts. And uh, was sitting in a corner, you know, with this black veil on, and there's a spider that you know scares the boys, and they run off. She loves cut back spiders. into her. She loves the spiders, as mm. we'll see soon enough. <laughs> um, but she is talking to the barber, and and he is is expressing his wish to to you know, be with a woman or lots of women, I guess. I don't know. Um, and and we just kind of flit around. One of the guys wins the lottery. He wins a thousand dollars, so that's his greed. And the the purveyor of all this stuff is Mister Cougar, um, who is is Mister Dark's assistant, um, who we see you know kind of throughout the film. He's really the the main antagonist for the boys for the first chunk of the movie. Um, so Mister Cougar is the purveyor of the wishes. He's the one providing them with their heart's desire and telling them where to go. And uh, so one of the guys gets sent to the Ferris wheel, and then the Dust Witch gets on with him, and then he disappears. Um Ms. Foley went through the Hall of Mirrors, the bar owner went through the Hall of Mirrors, we haven't seen the bartenders, you know, thing yet, but soon enough. And and all of these these carnival scenes are really solid. Um, you know, they feel legitimate, feels like an actual carnival if you've ever been to such a thing. And uh you know, again, we're we're kind of very quickly setting up that this carnival grants you your desires, or at least what you think are your desires. And the next thing uh jim nightshade takes a look at the the belly dancer tent (laughs) again another little bit of of, you know bradbury in a lot of bradbury stories your main characters kind of uh they kind of tend to break the rules a little bit and and so we see that here with with jim as well and they get caught you know peeping basically
1: And it helps establish the difference between the two boys, that Will doesn't do that, he's not a rule-breaker, and Jim is definitely a rule-breaker.
0: Right, Jim is willing to bend the rules to get what he wants. And basically we see that all of these people who won these quote-unquote prizes, um, they either disappear or become absorbed into the carnival, which we, we see later during the parade through town, that they've become... I guess new attractions, right? Uh, the guy who owned the cigar shop becomes a cigar smoking Indian, uh, the, the racist <laughs> cigar Indian uh, outside the, the the smoke shop uh, from from this time period. So he becomes one of those, which is great. Um, Ms. Foley, we we find out a little bit later, wished to be young, which she gets that wish, but of course she goes. What does she become because she wants to be young? She goes blind. Yep. Right? She can't even so enjoy she, her beauty. She's beautiful, but she can't see it, right? It's, it's the, the Twilight Zone, Burgess Meredith. You know, I, I have time now. Right? But his glasses are broken. So um, it's, it's that. So the main thing that, that the boys discover in their, their roving through the back tents of the carnival is the carousel. Which, this was the thing from this film that stuck in my mind the most. Uh, The carousel is supposedly out of order, but yet it it looks to be in order. And so we find the full name of the carnival is Dark's Pandemonium Carnival. Um, Which pandemonium is a pretty specific term. Uh, not necessarily one that I think has ever, you know, come into common use. But the the specific term for pandemonium, you know, the specific definition for pandemonium is confusion, uproar, and disorder.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. So it's it's strange that you would call your carnival something confusing and disorderly. But of course, as we come to find out over the course of the film, that's exactly what the carnival is. It it causes disorder and, in some ways, destruction wherever it goes. Um, but so we're we're fully introduced now to Mr. Dark. We have only seen him uh, you know, in, in brief snatches up until this point. But he is played here exceptionally well by one Mr. Jonathan Price. Um, In one of his earliest film roles, right? So Jonathan Price, uh, you may know him from a lot of different stuff. I would imagine a lot of people would recognize him from the Pirates of the Caribbean films, where he Mm -hmm. played Elizabeth's father, um, the magistrate. Uh, But he has done just exceptional work throughout his career. And here he... Namely uh, yeah Brazil. we can't can't forget Brazil just uh, a brilliant brilliant turn, really that film without Jonathan Price at its center yeah. um but so he he sort of whooshes the boys out, but not before revealing that he has sort of I guess these are meant to be like moving tattoos right he has the ability to create tattoos on his body and, and manipulate them move them around and so he's at first, I think they do a good job at juggling he's not terrifying right right he's he's certainly intimidating um but he he does have an allure about him um i I guess we could say that you know the pandemonium here rather than the dictionary definition it could be and more likely with bradbury is coming from the the paradise lost version of pandemonium right the uh because that isn't pandemonium. It's the the capital of hell in Paradise Lost, isn't it? Oh, uh, I think it is. And so it's it's probably more more that. But it works both directions, which again feels very Bradbury. Like the the meaning works both ways. Um, but I don't know. When I hear
1: know. Paradise Lost, I get flashbacks to grad school, and then I pass out. Right.
0: <laughs> and that's okay. That's probably <laughs> what happens for most people. But. Uh, but so pandemonium is it's a dark place it's a destructive place but the boys are are curious so they decide to hang around after the carnival closes again where are their parents what are they supposed to be doing no one knows no one cares it doesn't matter i suppose but they go in and sneak back in and they watch the carousel and we discover relatively quickly that the carousel is a Sort of time travel device. It it makes you younger or older. And there is a kind of running gag in the film that's uh isn't Will slightly older than Jim? Like they're basically the same age, but off by a, a relatively small amount of time. I think that's I think yeah. I remember that. And and so like there is this idea here of of you know growing older or younger by use of the carnival. And we actually watch Mr. Cougar get younger right he goes from being this middle-aged you know balding man to being like this little kid uh, who's roughly the same age as will and so he takes off they follow him and he goes to ms foley's and and poses i suppose uh as this nephew that she mentioned was coming to visit uh which obviously the the boys know is is incorrect but he frames them for like trashing her window, and so they get in trouble. Uh, I guess we should really just take a moment and talk about the child acting in this film, which, you know, for the most part, child actors are awful. As we've discussed, I mean, uh, we talked a little bit about Fred Savage and Little Monsters, and and one of the reasons why Fred Savage was such a sensation was because he was a very, very good child actor. He's a child actor that could actually act and act well. Um, and in general, I think these, these two boys do a, a really, really good job. Very talented. Um, apparently the search for the two of them was extensive. Um, and both of these boys ended up reading for, uh, their opposing part. So the boy who ended up playing Will Holloway was originally brought in to read for Jim and, and vice versa. Uh, so much so that they even had to dye their hair, like the, the boy that read for Jim, who ended up being Will, had super dark hair, and the boy who ended up reading for Will and getting Jim had blonde hair, so they had to to dye both of their hairs to be accurate to the characters. But I think both of these kids do a good job. Will especially, uh, Will gets a yes. lot more to do in the film than Jim does in a lot of ways. Jim's- well, the
1: father-son relationship is a little bit more central to the plot,
0: right? Yeah, I think it's it's more you know he's just going to get more screen time for that. Um, but really, neither of these these boys did anything much after this, um, yeah. which Star I think Trek. is. is unfortunate but the film was was not successful and and didn't garner them much uh success after the fact um so jim comes home after this experience at the carnival and then miss foley's house and finds his mother with a man and and he's not really cool with that (laughs) which i suppose is understandable and then will has a conversation again with his dad about um about everything going on but
1: this is a very slow moving plot
0: and i am especially struck by the lack of characters communicating what they've experienced like theoretically what will and jim have just seen is earth shattering right life-changing stuff and and he doesn't really seem interested in in communicating that to his father which we we see they've got a good relationship there's no reason to believe that his dad wouldn't believe him or think that that what he's saying is true but yet he doesn't really say and we get a fair another sort of you know fatherly conversation here but no real attempt but no real attempt to to share sort of what he's just experienced um and so I don't know if this is intentional, you know, trying to get back to this, this sort of older idea of parents and children and this sort of dividing line between their experience that maybe Bradbury's playing with a bit, uh, or maybe it's it's just because Robards begins to talk about this event in their past at the Indigo River, and in essence we come to find out that perhaps a lot of the insecurity that Jim's dad or Will's dad feels about their relationship stems from this inability that he had when Jim, uh, when Will was younger to rescue him from falling into that river. So they were down by it, having a picnic. Young Will fell in around four years old and and the father, because of his heart condition and his advanced age, didn't jump in to save him, right? Just sort of watched it happen. And then he ended up being rescued by Jim Nightshade's dad. And he has felt ever since like he is a sort of failure, right? Unable, unable to provide for Will's safety, which of course is is an, an important thematic beat for where we end up at the end of the film, but he brings it up and Will doesn't want to talk about it, right? He just wants to let it go. And this, for me, this, this whole plot line of the, the father, you know, sort of feeling inadequate as a father the incident at the Indigo River being this sort of inciting event for this feeling all of this feels like a larger and longer series of of scenes that we have had ejected from the film Right? you can't get rid of it completely because it's just integrated into scenes that you need but this especially, like this next 20 minutes as they're kind of going back and forth about this stuff, just doesn't feel complete I mean Robards acts the hell out of it, don't get me wrong, um, you know, you can see that he is, he's legitimately pained by these circumstances, but, but you know, I, I just don't know if those it scenes land.
1: felt like it needed a flashback. It felt like we needed sure. to see that moment somehow. Of Of his failure to save will, <laughs> but right. we don't we don't ever see it, so it's it's really hard it's hard to assess that as being you know this huge you know pivotal moment in his life when when we don't we don't really ever get that. Um, yeah. i I thought a flashback would have been enough to sort of sell the idea
0: i mean he does get this great line in that scene about how you know you never regret the things you do you regret the things you didn't do and he and and you know all these ideas about blame and, and where do you put this blame i mean these are like really heady concepts and they, they just don't kind of go anywhere beyond these scenes
1: well the movie's too short I and mean, there's yeah, just not I mean, enough it, time
0: it feels like some really important ideas that could have been developed extensively. And they just kind of get, and they just kind of get backgrounded. And then the conversation takes this weird turn because he says, just tell me that I'll live forever and I'll be happy. Cause Will's like, why can't we just be happy? Why can't we just, just be happy at stuff? And, and Robards is like, well, tell me I'll live forever and then I'll be happy. And, and, Will immediately turns and is like, don't talk about death. Don't do that. And so, I mean, obviously that's, it's important because what Will has just seen is in essence the opportunity to live again, right? To lose your your age, to, to start over. And again, this feels like a natural point for Will to be like, dad, you'll never believe what I saw tonight. And then for dad to be like, that's bull hockey. I would never, you know, what are you talking about? What you, you been smoking the pipe weed, you know what? And, and none of that happens. None of that goes anywhere. Even though we, we're ostensibly having this emotional scene about what it means, what it means, you know, to die. And again, this, it feels disconnected from everything that we've just seen and what the boys have just experienced. Yeah, And it also feels a little bit like somebody said, you know, we need a little bit of that Scout Finch action. We need a little little bit of that Atticus Finch sharing nuggets of wisdom with the little kid, right? Like somebody felt that need to try and turn that relationship into this when I don't really think that that's what the film was trying to do.
1: And I don't think it needed it.
0: No, no. I mean, it's, it's homespun. It, it's, you know, it's not bad advice or bad ideas, but it, it certainly doesn't feel connected to everything else that's going on. Apart from just the overarching theme of, of an older, of an old man confronting his mortality and his relationship to the people around him. Like it, it feels like that. And a, and a kid, I guess, also being exposed quite legitimately to the concept of death, maybe for the first time. And in the fact that his dad it is someday going to die and what does that mean so uh, you know again thematically it's working but the scene itself feels disconnected from everything else that we've seen and experienced and then it just kind of ends you know it it does end with will kind of inviting his dad up the trellis ladder and the dad's like yeah i don't think so you know it, so they they just had this conversation about the dad being like, I really wanna I want to be young and I want to provide for you, but then he gives him the chance, and the dad's like, eh,
1: Nah, yeah, I'm nuts, good. It's Okay,
0: I got this bathrobe on. I'm, I'm That's smoking a cigar. stuff. You know, so again, it sort of just stands in contrast to a lot of the other a lot of the other scenes that we've we've sort of dealt with, but perhaps explains a little bit why Will and his father aren't as close as they could be or maybe even that will wants to be so it, again I I just question two kids being able to like go home and go to their bedtime routine after seeing a man get on a carousel <laughs> and lose 40 years and then well, throw a rock through a window you know, maybe they didn't you know? see
1: what they saw maybe it was some sort of optical illusion <laughs> right
0: it's all craziness
1: it was just a weather balloon <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly and so then we start seeing the the consequences, right? So the carnivals come through, people have gotten their wishes, but obviously there are consequences. So Ms. Foley gets young, but she goes blind, and there of course is the creepy little redheaded Mr. Cougar. That was to, uh, terrifying. Yeah, like those shots are all really good. Um, you know, the, the horror elements of this work pretty phenomenally. Um you know, they they feel of a piece with the sort of better horror films of this era, right? They're treated realistically, they're shot well and and cleanly without a lot of trickery. And then, again, I I question whether or not there were scenes, you know, scenes missing, right? Let's call this section scenes missing. Because the next scene we get after Miss Foley is Jim leaving in the middle of the night and Will somehow immediately knows exactly what he's doing, which is he's going to go ride the carousel and get older than him so that he can be a man.
1: Okay. Right.
0: And so somehow Will knows this is exactly what he's doing. Like he's literally just sneaking out of his house in the middle of the night like. That's all. But Will is like, oh, hey, I know what you're up to. You're going to go get older than me and you're going to look down at me and you're going to be you're going to be this old man or older guy. And I'm going to be this little kid. And that sucks.
1: Kind of feels like the old and young conflict could have been developed a little bit more. Um, You know, the desire to be older, the desire to be younger. I mean, if they were going to go that way, probably should have developed that a bit more in the script.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it feels like a, an old beef between these two kids where they're constant. I mean, we get one reference to it before this, but it, I mean, Jim is, is legitimately putting his life in danger to do this. Like they know that this is a bad idea, but he's like desperate, so desperate to be older that he's willing to take this risk and nothing that we've seen up until this point justifies him being willing to do that. I imagine that something was tied together with his mother's search for a man to be the head of the household, that jim is that jim is is trying to fill that space, right? If I'm older and I'm a man, then i can just I can just take care of things, and I don't have to my mom doesn't have to find you know a man anymore. right. It feels a bit like that, but none of that's discussed all of that's backgrounded probably because those were uncomfortable conversations, right? Because those are the scenes I think are missing are we're having the adult conversations and the adults are telling us things and we're having conversations about stuff from the adult's perspective. And the adults are kind of dumb and selfish and they're wrapped up in their own problems instead of paying attention to the kids, typical stuff. And and so then the kids go and discuss and they're like, well, if I was the man of the household, I would just take care of it. and I would just do this. My mom wouldn't have to worry about that anymore but they don't want to have those conversations because those are hard conversations for kids to have. And, and I'm feeling like they got dropped. Yeah. And so when he makes this decision, it just feels weird. It it basically feels like we have to have something that needs to get them back to the carnival. They have to get back to the carnival to see these things that we need them to see. And so Jim is going to go decide to do this sort of apropos of nothing and sure enough they arrive back at the carnival and they see the people who are missing in town who have been granted their wishes they see Tom Fury who we see now is, is somehow connected to the carnival he with an he electric knows,
1: chair <laughs>
0: yeah he's he's going to be electrified That's and apparently really scary. he
1: can
0: he could take it yeah these these are pretty terrifying scenes I guess it's a
1: heck of a direction um, to take a kids disney film to have to have the cool old man in the electric chair.
0: We're going to put Royal Whoa. Dano in an electric chair. Jesus. Uh, which, uh, I love Royal Dano. Uh yeah. he, he was a a staple of C and B grade horror films throughout the 80s, most notably the Ghoulies franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he was also, he was in uh, House 2, wasn't he? Didn't he play the yes. gunslinger in House 2, I want to say? um. Yeah. But yeah, he was all over the place and and uh I, I want to say isn't Paul Dano? Isn't he I don't like know if they're grandson? related. I can't, I can't related?
1: find can't find um, any relation there, but uh
0: uh yeah, I'm I'm probably yeah, no, I, I, he would be listed if if so, but um yeah, just a, a great actor, tremendous voice, just just really really specific and and lots of fun, but uh he also had a, a a brief role in uh twin peaks uh playing mm-hmm. judge sternwood who's great um but but anyway um he's being interrogated i guess mr dark is is interrogating him to know when the lightning is coming because the lightning and, and i suppose the storm um will reveal who they are they need to be gone before the lightning arrives and they think tom fury can tell them um we get some some really cool sequences with the dusk witch or the dust witch dusk witch um dust. yeah they uh they do some cool stuff with her face kind of make her look uh, like a skeleton um she has this long cloak on that she she just takes off on the film but then they paint over it to make it look like ice shattering it was a really neat sequence um
1: the effects in this are really cool for the time i am dated as they are they're really right. cool
0: <laughs> yeah no they're they're effectively used um but so when they see tom fury being tortured will because we've established he is the, the sort of more rule followy of the two he screams out tells them to stop and then they get scared and run for home um and the the dust witch uh follows them in mist form right so she has exceptional powers
1: i wish i had a mist form
0: i know right wouldn't that be cool make it makes so convenient many things a way to travel it would be you know and even if the automatic doors at the supermarket weren't working you just slide in it would be be fantastic yeah um and then we get i would say in this sequence we get one of the most horrific shots in the film which they they go by a guillotine
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: like and will Holloway's like body is laying in the guillotine and they just
1: chop his head off that and then we actually get a, out that i mean that looked so That prop looked really good, for one thing. Look, it really did kind of look like the kid.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I think they may have done, like, the neck through the floor thing and actually had the kid's face. (laughs) It it looked like that, but it was exceptionally good. Uh, So then Will gets home, and his mom is super angry because he was out late, which seems (laughs) to not fit with... (laughs) Coming home late for like the last week, apparently. Um, but tonight I've decided yeah. to pay
1: attention to you. <laughs>
0: yes, tonight I'm upset about you not not uh, making it home on time. But then, of course, Dad tries to to smooth it over, and then we get probably one of the most horrific scenes in the film. The boys decide to to sync up. They go over to um, uh, Will goes over to Jim's house, and, and they're hiding from the dusk witch. She's you know sort of encroaching on this cloud. Uh, we do see the lightning rod doing a bit of work so maybe there is something to tom fury's you know promises of protection uh, but they get inside and then um the room is attacked from the outside by spiders
1: yeah
0: and uh, and so this whole sequence is surprisingly solid um you know the boys are inside they they seem like or feel like they're safe and then the house starts creaking the roof splits, or the the ceiling splits, and and spiders start pouring out. Spiders are everywhere. So if you have a, a spider aversion, this film is
1: which not I do for you. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean they're all tarantulas, so they're not like yeah. if you know anything about tarantulas, tarantulas aren't that scary. But um, you know they're they're just kind of everywhere the the photography on this is really good lots of weird angles and
1: it kind of reminded me of the tree attack scene in poltergeist just Mm -hmm. the way it was shot
0: yeah yeah it feels that way for sure but the way the spiders just all appear they're like pouring through the window coming through the door will tries to get away Again, these all feel like legitimate horror beats, like no, no holds barred, no questions asked, you know, this is, we are trying to scare the pants off you and not in like a cool, ooh, scary kind of way. Um, so just hyper effective, um, you know, he even gets the Indiana Jones moment where he's got to like brush the spider off his shoulder sort of thing. <laughs> I think I read an article when I was prepping that later in like, you know, q and a's that these these guys have done in the years since this came out that they had to interact with these spiders for so long that they actually got like um like burns on their hands from because they're the,
1: little hairs
0: from the little hairs like they would they would actually like you know get roughed up because they had to interact with them for so long
1: and the hairs were legitimately prickly
0: I know right? it's kind of like the birds right if some of the and I guess that was the movie I thought of the most in the sequence when they're just being assaulted and you know like Jim's got the pillow and he's just going crazy on (laughs) him and and then like Will is just (laughs) he's he's just uh, like catatonic in the corner and um, it really feels like Melanie trapped in the attic with the birds like that feels like what they're going for here. Um, and it's 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 really effectively done. Horner's score again just kind of ramps up with this cacophony as like bomb, 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 and you know it 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 has all the hallmarks again of a of a classic sort of scary movie, right? A Hitchcock style scary movie, not necessarily the the eighties slasher style, but of course they're all sort of one of a kind, right? They've all kind of built up into this this amalgam these days, but. Uh, so then lightning strikes the lightning rod and they both wake up and, Oh, it was all a dream or was it right? Like, because of course, after they're awake for a little while, he steps on uh, something that freaks him out. So maybe it happened maybe it didn't. Um, so it, again great moment really well done we we smash cut to church the next morning you know so a place of safety a place of security hopefully and you know then uh and this is straight from the book this this scene the the carnival holds a parade right as many of them would do to advertise their presence in the town but the boys, uh, somehow, and I guess in a cool way, you know, it's it's good that they're aware of what's going on, they're not oblivious, but they kind of know instinctually that this is the card they're looking for them, right? That this parade is not just to advertise, but they are legitimately trying to find the two of them and using this as an excuse. So they decide to hide. Um, we get a lot of Jonathan Price just sort of warily walking and staring uh he's He's, he's very good scowling he's just i mean it's a really striking figure there is something to be said for that carnival barker but freaky look right it it feels like i guess a modern analog it feels like something out of a neil gaiman story these days right that the the sort of freaky carnival barker would be your your uh you know your guy leading the charge.
1: And, you know, it would be silly to say that writers like Bradbury didn't influence people like Gaiman with the sort of things that they write.
0: Yeah, Gaiman feels much, feels a lot, this is going to sound insulting, but he feels like a more erudite Ray Bradbury in a lot of ways. Be like like intentionally you know working in you know stuff from other places whereas i think bradbury was much more focused on on the original ideas pouring out of his head but much like gaiman is too I don't. again i i'm backing myself into a corner here where it's going to try and insult either one of these two guys and i don't want to do that but they're both
1: great everyone's great <laughs> they're both
0: great everyone's great nothing's wrong um gaiman i, I don't know he feels more um it feels like a lot more of his references and his his sort of literary ideas are sort of you know worn on his sleeve, where I think bradbury it was it was buried in a little it was buried in a few more layers of personal experience and
1: um, well, you know the time periods would suggest that that's that 's entirely possible
0: <laughs> right um, so now we start to also see that the carnival is using this to connect with more people who have needs and wants specifically jim's uh mom Uh, because she she obviously still holds some kind of candle for jim's dad and we don't know exactly what's going on but he hands her uh one of the the carnival workers hands her a uh, a ticket to the hall of mirrors like we've seen all of the other people get so so jim's immediately concerned immediately worried uh the dad, and his stroll through the town, realizes that a lot of people are missing and, um, you know, that a lot of shops are closed. You know, what's going on? And, of course, the boys recognize a lot of those figures in the carnival itself, in the parade. But they hide in, like, a sewer grate, right? Sort of, like, under the street, which is kind of intriguing. Uh, they would even have access to something like that, but uh, that is where they end up sort of chilling out while the dad does a bit of investigation into the the whereabouts of all of these people that uh, are pretty much town staples, right? What, why is the bar closed kind of thing. Uh, then Mr. Dark arrives, uh, again, being somewhat, I don't know, he feels, um, I, I don't wanna say that he, he's still off-putting, right? Everything about him is off-putting but he's very charming here and and he's trying and he has a good plausible reason for why he wants to find the two boys right it all seems very much you know typical normal but fortunately will's dad much like will himself realizes that there's there's more going on right he's not just just that uh i suppose it's worth mentioning here too that uh there is an episode of rick and morty <laughs> that uh is, is most definitely referencing this character. Uh, I think Summer gets a job at a store that sells needful things. Uh, I think in the movie <laughs> in the in the show they call it needful, you know, it's more needful things, but the character, the actual one that she winds up working for, it looks he's designed to be very much like the Jonathan Price uh character from this film, which is is intentional, but I, I do. I do love that little little deep cut. Uh, you can always rely on Rick and Morty to <laughs> pull stuff out from the <laughs> 1980s. Uh, it seems like a lo- where a lot of their uh, stuff comes from and then uh, we do find out what happened to the uh, the bar owner. He got his wish he's complete again, right he has his whole body, but he's like a little kid now right? he's not a man anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so the dad is observing all this and and is is a hundred percent like, all right this is all weird. Uh, everything's wrong. Something's up, and I, I like that because he's not. We know from this point on that he's not going to be the oblivious dad that doesn't listen to his kids or listen to his kid. And you know that's that's really cool. That's something about eighties horror films that I generally like. It, a lot of times they. A lot of times they were more willing to to sort of have parents get involved, right? Most of them, it was the opposite, right? Parents are never going to listen to me, like gremlins. Um, you know, until Billy Pelzer's mom, like, kills a bunch of gremlins in her kitchen, she has, you know, no idea what's going exactly. on. Exactly. But there's, like, a, a really great moment of connection. Like, the the will reaches up through the grate in the sewer and the dad reaches down through it. And he's like, That okay, was really I, sweet. I, I believe you, you know. And so that kind of stuff, again, like the the core relationships in this film basically work. um, But there just feels like there are these missing pillars of of some of these sort of core elements that would tie them together better. Uh, But then, of course, we get the library scene. uh, What's necessary in every film that has a backstory to explain. And so Will's dad is able to go back into his father's journals and Sort of ascertain that the, the pandemonium carnival has made its way through town before, and when it did, it wreaked havoc on the town and the people and uh, caused all kinds of issues and problems. Unfortunately, they are interrupted by Mr. Dark, who is still tracking the boys. They hide in the library and he has a sort of confrontation with Charles. And he does. Which is very he-
1: intense. Very yeah, this whole
0: this whole scene it goes on for a really long time, right? I was expecting this. I just kept waiting for the shoe to drop and the scene to end, but it's it's really a tour de force for both of these actors, right? Jonathan Price is he's electric in this scene. Like, yeah. He is absolutely at the top of his game, and it's a simple set. Right. It's really just kind of like this this upper library level and it's sort of in a big circle, but it's all lit from below and shining up into the room. There's no lighting or very little lighting at the top of the room. So the whole time face, uh, Price's face is, is underlit and he just looks so menacing, like yeah. absolutely terrifying the entire time. He's in full black. He's got black gloves on. Um, he did show earlier he was able to create tattoos of the boys' faces on his hands to show his dad to show the dad, which was was kind of cool. It's a neat effect, um, and that is, if I remember, that was straight from the book too. That like he has tattoos of their faces on his hands so he can know what they look like. But then he has this confrontation with Charles, and of course he knows that Charles's secret desire is to be young again, right? To to
1: young, to lose. strong good for his son a better father
0: a better father right and he just hits all of those notes and and it all culminates in him taking the diary the the father's diary or the grandfather's Mm -hmm. diary i guess and then ripping the pages out and calling out the years and the effects and he's like for every page i call out that's a year i won't give you back basically that's what it, it if i remember right and so he's ripping them out and he's going through all the years of life and he's like, oh, 39, that's not so bad. And then, oh, 40, you know, and, and it's just this incredibly intense scene because he's offering him, you know, what he wants. But yet Holloway knows that it's a trap. He knows that there, there will be unforeseen consequences. But it's just, it's a super intense scene. It's super well acted. It's really well shot. And it provides this, this emotional It. he also sort of reveals kind of what draws them in and, and it's the it's the once right the young boy who wants to be a man the old man who wants to be a boy right that nobody is satisfied with their lot everybody wants something they can't have and so his carnival provides that thing right that's, that's what draws them in that's what makes them them go is, is having that. And so he he offers him the ultimate prize. And then he starts ripping the book out. And as he rips the pages out, they like glow like they're on fire, which is, is really cool. And, you know, Robards acts against that basically silently, right? He just sort of stares and watches and Price just goes goes for it. And it, it's a cool it's, scene,
1: man. It's very... It- It has that same quality of like the, you know, we were talking about slasher films. It has that same quality of the slow chase from a slasher film of, Mm -hmm. you know, the the slow-moving terror. Because it's just, it is very intense. And like you said, it goes on for a long time. Um, And then, of course, we get him hunting down the actual children.
0: Right. Because, of course, Will can't remain silent, right? He wants to come to his father's defense. And so... Mr. Dark knows they're present, knows he's there. Uh and then, you know, it, it sort of ends with an assault, right? He attacks Holloway and uh what does he do to his hand? He like kind of crushes his hand. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so again, just an intimidating uh character. And he sort of I mean the effect is very subtle. It's it's not exceedingly gross but he basically like tears his hand open like causes his hand to break and it splits and and really the horror of the scene is knowing that that will has to kind of watch this happen to his dad that his dad can't really or, or chooses not to defend himself so again as i was watching it this time as a kid i you know i didn't none of the the stuff with the father really resonated with me i was focused on the experience of the kids you know but coming at it now you know being a father and being older myself you know it it has this different tenor to it it's much more malicious uh there's much more pain and rage in this film about life right about what happens to us as we and age aging. Yeah. yeah and and it's it's really it's it's an additional layer to the film that definitely conflicts with all of these rose gold. Oh, look back on my past with fondness stuff that we're supposed to think, but it it really does. Those moments really do resonate. And again, a lot of it is is coming from price and Robards and how well they sort of act these scenes out, but just the father's, you know, failure, his feeling that he cannot do the things he needs to do all sort of culminates in this moment as he sort of collapses on the ground. Um, there's a really cool shot. I, I'm sure you remember it as Price is walking along the bookshelves, and it's, uh, it's like great, right? It's like metal grating and all of the light shining up through it. So his face is just constantly in, in like crossbarred shadows. Just really, really nice, uh, nice work. Just a beautiful set of uh, shots and sequences. Um, but of course, he's looking for the boys. He knows they're there, and, and eventually he, he finds them. So they, they come out and then we find out that everybody else is at sort of like Sunday evening church and, and nobody's going to be able to come and and help them. So Dark has the boys, he's going to take them back to the carnival. And, and of course that's where our, you know, our, our climax is. And uh, we get a a little glimpse into Dark's plan for the boys, which I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly, you know, sort of what he wants he seems he seems much more interested in jim uh even so much as saying that the carnival is going to be um like the dark and nightshade carnival like so he sees something or seemingly sees something inside jim that that he wants to to bring to the carnival right A, a mischievousness perhaps You know, it's again, this is is something that feels really underdeveloped in the film, right? Something that that should have been a larger component. Because I
1: I kind of wondered if it was because Jim's family wasn't as strong or as solid or able to recover in the same way that Will's family was. You know, there's kind of this almost troubling, but yet understandable given the the time period um message about you know their families maybe jim's family was not in the same uh shape that will's family was because of course he didn't have it wasn't complete you know it was just the mom and the mom was struggling romantically and it looked like their family just wasn't quite as happy so i kind of wondered if it was that
0: yeah, it certainly feels of a piece of that, but it almost also seems like at one point, Jim might have been a lot more mischievous than we wind up seeing in the final version of the film. Possibly. Right, because we, you know, again, if you're also trying to create this sort of like rosy look at these this good friendship, we know from the start that Will is, is more of like the goody two-shoes of the two. That's obvious, but... For Dark to actually believe that Jim would not only want to, to benefit from the carnival, but actually join it, right, to join the carnival as one of the people in charge, a new Mr. Cougar, if you will, uh, that, that seems unwarranted based on what we've seen out of Jim. Why would Jim want that and why would he be susceptible to being offered that apart from, you know, the, the familial situation, you know, wanting a father, so to speak. Which I mean, there's an opportunity here for if Jim was that desperate for a father figure, dark could be that for him, right um, and and so I, I wanted a lot more with that. I wanted to understand why dark felt that that nightshade could could be that. And again, I, I think the elements are there. I think the pieces are in place, but we just don't get to see we just don't get to see that, right. But, of course, everything comes down to the Hall of Mirrors, which this sequence is, is great. Uh, there are some good you know, mirror sequences in film. Uh, there's a really good one in the most recent uh, Watchmen series. There's a Hall of Mirrors scene that's excellent. Um, but frequently in, in visual media, the Hall of Mirrors is seen as a, a place of terror and, and change and desire, right? The chance to see yourself differently or in these different ways. Um, So this is not a, from a thematic standpoint, this isn't like revelatory, but we, he, if anything dark finally lays out for Will Holloway's dad, exactly what he's been doing, that the mirrors offer a chance to, to be someone else. And that if he just reaches out and takes it, he could have something else too. So it's, it's Holloway's sort of chance to embrace what he wants, which of course is his youth. Um. And. And then, of course, we do get, you know, not the flashback necessarily of the scene, but we do see Jim or not Jim, but Will, you know, splashing in the river with the father who's unable to save him or
1: like it took us an hour and 26 minutes to get there.
0: Right, uh-huh. it might have it might have even been more resonant to to briefly flash to that during that sequence, and then when we see it in its full effect here, you know, it, it's it's brought. Back, it would have meant you know? more.
1: I mean, we yeah. would have had more time to let that land as an emotional touch point for the film, but it it didn't it didn't quite get there.
0: Right, and in a lot of ways too. Uh, I mean, again, this is from the, this is from the perspective of the father and, and, you know, again, I, I I am a father and when you make a mistake, even a small one, it can certainly stick with you and, and be this, this point of, of mental contention where you're constantly like, I could have done that better. I should have done that better. So I can't imagine how what the lingering effects of nearly letting your child die would be i i can't i have no reference point for that um but it's there's a bit of it that's like it seems like he's being really hard on himself you know a little bit he's really hard on himself um but again that's 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 the thematic point that we need to break through and and he legit and he does exactly that by breaking the glass and reaching into his memory and pulling his son through um and so in the original bradbury story the thing that crushed the darkness that broke pandemonium was love right actual like real legitimate love not desire not lust but love like, like actual right like actual caring and so um jim uh will excuse me so like will uh calls out to his dad says that he loves him the dad hears it they they reconnect and that happiness begins to sort of shatter the par- the the power of the carnival uh tom fury breaks free uh uses a lightning rod to stab the dusk witch and in a Then, like the Hall of Mirrors, you disappears. It just shatters. And so, here is is the most obvious place in the film where I think legitimate and serious cuts were made. Because while all that is happening, all we really get from Dark are a couple of like reaction shots that could legitimately be to anything in the movie. Yeah. Like he's just sort of staring, <laughs> he's just sort of staring to screen right and being like, oh, oh, oh. He's not upset. He's not scared. Um, and then Tom Fury gets out of the the thing and grabs a lightning rod, and then he all of a sudden is in the Hall of Mirrors and he's killing the Dusk Witch like all of these feel like either reshoots or pieces of other scenes that they assembled to create this sort of like uplifting moment between the father and son and also dealing with plot stuff like, well, we have to deal with the dusk, Witch, we have to get Tom Fury. Cause you know, he, he has to survive and everything's gotta be good. And you know, so this, that feels really chopped up. And, and as a result, a lot of the catharsis of their success, like doesn't really work and so they they catch up to dark and nightshade while dark is is offering him you know the ability to be with the carnival forever and jim like seems totally okay with this like he's absolutely willing to to just go along and and do this he doesn't even really say anything um so this just doesn't feel, I don't know, all of that stuff with Jim joining Dark, none of that feels legitimate. It all feels just kind of constructed. You know, we do get a sort of semi-emotional moment as Will screams, you know, don't ditch me, you know, that kind of thing. But that's thats it. I mean, thats that's all we get. And then, like... This also is from the Bradbury story that Jim is near death, and the thing that brings him back from the dead, or, or from death itself, is is that same love and happiness and excitement. Um, so this is probably where <laughs> a lot of people are gonna jump off this movie if uh, if you're not with it, uh, because tonally it's a little strange, because uh, dark. Uh, the, the carousel gets struck by lightning, right? Because that's the whole thing. Like the lightning right. storm comes and, and if they're not gone by the time the lightning storm comes, then the carnival is in trouble. And that's exactly what happens. Dark uh, is on the carousel. It gets struck by lightning. He's he's being fried alive behind them on the carousel. Um, just while things are happening. <laughs> it just, you know, it's just happening and nobody's really paying much attention. And so he's being electrified. And... Will's dad tells him that 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 they want uh fear and, and rage and discussions of death. That's what that's what these people feed on. And so the way to combat death in this place is through happiness and joy. So he starts doing like a little jig and dancing around Will, and he's like, ah, we're gonna be happy and, and all this different stuff. <laughs> and Awkward. and and it, it that's straight out of the book. Uh so I I understand it, but it it really again is not this film lacks in a very real way setup and payoff. It yeah. lacks the setup and then the eventual payoff of that idea. It it just doesn't have enough of that, right? So if we'd had a scene earlier in the film where, you know, someone was struggling with depression and they said, well, the only way to get rid of depression is to do this then then maybe that would have been easier to to grasp but it, it just kind of doesn't come from anywhere and i and I, I can't remember in the book specifically but i think in the book it was sort of set up that way but here it just kind of comes off as as like what what why? hold on why um you know and it's not that robards acts it poorly or does anything bad with the it's lines. just
1: that the moment is weird
0: <laughs> yeah just the moment itself is strange um so the storm hits and, and begins pouring down rain. Basically, it's, it's, I think it's meant to, it's a tornado, basically, has, has hit the town, uh, which, uh, as someone who grew up in Illinois, and, and it is most definitely Tornado Alley. That's going to happen. <laughs> it's, it's a real legitimate problem. And uh, so the tornado comes and it, it quite legitimately just sucks the carnival into the air and wipes it away. Uh we do see Mr. Dark. He he uh, uh turns into a skeleton that then gets picked up by one of the carnival workers and sort of <laughs> that's so funny. he
1: just comes up um, and picks him up and is like, "Well, I'll clean this
0: up now." Yeah, well, I guess that's what happened to us this time. So we don't even really know if the carnival's truly destroyed or if it's just been sort of kicked out of this place, right? The idea is this continues on and and will continue. To, to sort of travel around, or at least that's kind of the way I, I like to think about it. This was really the end of the pandemonium carnival that they don't have any hold over this place anymore. Um, but so our, our cathartic ending, um, which, you know, again, the book is, is primarily positive, um, has, you know, Holloway running with the boys celebrating, um, doing things that that supposedly he shouldn't be doing right if his heart condition is any indicator but so things have have changed they we we come back to the the voiceover narration and it focuses surprisingly on on the dad right he says you know my dad was kind of okay with being old now he was all right with it um which again is thematically appropriate that's what all the characters needed to understand is that they're where they are in life is not bad and you should look to the good and, and the positive rather than the loss and the regret. Um, you know, so, I mean, that's a a really positive message, but I don't know if the movie does a great job of sort of selling it in advance. Right. I think it just sort of hits at the end and it feels very Disney-fied. Yeah. Uh, which a lot of people did complain about. And I, I think it's a legitimate concern. Um, but the horror elements of this film hit and they hit well. And it does speak to a a much different time in filmmaking where I I think there was a lot more time spent on character, a lot more time spent on dialogue um, instead of set pieces, right? This film has set pieces. Of course it does. I mean, the the carousel, the de-aging, there's some really good special effects, a lot of really interesting sequences, but it not, not in, in, not with the purpose of, of overshadowing all of the other very important elements of, uh, of the character work. And so, um, you know, watching it even now, this film works for me. I think the second act is, is clunky. You can feel, that's where you start to feel the seams sort of come apart in terms of the, the original sort of plan for this film. Again, Disney spent another $5 million to put this film out. and and sort of reshape it in the way they wanted and and you can start to see those things begin to unravel in the second act um i think it was originally much darker because you know i think we were supposed to see a much darker side of jim nightshade and what he was willing to get up to and why he might become fascinated with with a place like the dark carnival and and we just don't get some of that stuff that i think would have really made those final moments of payoff all the more satisfying which we don't really get here um it's a good ending it's it's satisfying enough but it is not what it could have been in my opinion um at least not for all of the cool things that they set up in the film but uh any thoughts on the the ending the the wrap-up
1: um i laughed a lot at that last scene uh just it was a little chaotic um and, like you said i think I think it's fairly evident that more was in that scene, and they just kind of cobbled it together to finish it. um I kind of feel that way about the last you know twenty minutes of the movie is that it feels with the exception of the scene in the library, it all kind of feels mm-hmm. like it's starting to fall apart a little bit um, but yeah i I think it resolved. Well enough. I certainly love, you know, Jim and Will and and uh, and the dad running mm-hmm. off into a matte painting at the end. That right. was very lovely. <laughs> yeah, just um, so some
0: beautiful nature running. Yeah,
1: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That was that was nice. But I, I liked it. But it was it had some pretty comical moments, especially you know with Jonathan Price basically doing a an Indiana Jones Nazi on that carousel. It was great.
0: Yes, yes. He gets uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> on that carousel for sure it takes a little bit longer to get there he's got goes through a few more stages but uh yeah it's 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 intriguing i i again i i love the carnival setting so much i love the idea of the carnival barker that that is evil that has this agenda You know, that that whole concept, it just works for me. Like, just 100%, check that box, I'm there, I'm gold. Like, if a movie came out that had that premise, I'm probably going to go check it out. And I kind of didn't want him to die in such a final way, right? I I kind of wanted the carnival to just sort of, you know, their plans be destroyed, maybe some stuff gets messed up, but then they just sort of, they, they take off, you know, whether the storm takes them or whatever, you know, we don't really get a payoff for Tom Fury. We don't see, we don't get any kind of moment of reconciliation with him as he sort of continues his march across the country or whatever, you know, the, the Johnny Appleseed of lightning rods. I, I don't know. But, the they're just there there elements to this story that feel like they just kind of get pushed to the side and this is a story about dads and sons getting along and and we're just going to have a voiceover that says everything was fine and everybody was happy and and we just had a great time and it was awesome the end, the end. and it's like <laughs> and it's like but wouldn't there be ramifications right shouldn't we see all of the people that you know, like what happened to all the people that were were lulled in? Did they get to come back? Right. We kind of see the power, I don't know, being taken off of them right at the end. Did they run away? Did they are their stores going to reopen? Are those people? Did right? they forget?
1: Yeah. Like I mean, do what, they even remember what happened to them? We don't know.
0: I don't know. I mean, like what what happens? Like we just don't get any of that stuff. We just get happy dad, happy kids. Let's let's go. Right. And,
1: and that's very Disney. I mean, that's that's how they right. would finish a story like this
0: yeah you know it's it's and it ostensibly it is a kids movie so i get it but at the same time it's like you could have done something far more resonant here and i have a feeling that was probably part of the plan um but you know what are you going to do right like when your your movie gets taken away from you and the studio does its own thing you're not going to really be able to (laughs) <laughs> there's not a lot you can do about it you know and and that's the unfortunate reality of of you know big time hollywood filmmaking but i i like the scale of this i think it's really manageable in, in many ways it's a kind of small quiet movie um with really big explosions of stuff happening but uh you know like even the the end credits you know this is not an end credits that needs like a I think there's harmonica in the in credits. Like it's like, it's like what? What is? Why? You just you just electrified a man to death on a carousel until the point he was a skeleton. And now you're like, time for some harmonica by the river. It's I'm a matte painting. to chill out over here. You know, it's like, what?
1: <laughs>
0: how is <laughs> how did those two things go together? Right? Like, I just don't get it. Uh, it's it's such a strange flip right at the end. It just it feels like there was there was something far more serious that could have been done here. That I think ultimately would have placed this in a much more Resonant place, right? Even if it wasn't, you know, I, I guess we can go in and get into like our, our one thing, but I, I've struggled with the one thing for this film because I don't know if there is anything that could make this "quote unquote" popular. Like, I, I really don't.
1: It doesn't um, seem to be any one thing. No, there's a lot no, of things that I would do, but not any right. one thing.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that could be done to sort of massage this film in a couple of different directions. But no matter what direction it goes in, I don't think it's going to be that satisfying to anybody. I think that this film was doomed to fail just based on the source material alone. Uh, Not that the source material is bad, but that the source material itself, I don't think is, is particularly popular or, or has anything about it that could be popular. They would have had to
1: change more and that would have put them in a rough spot with Ray Bradbury even further.
0: Right. Yeah. I don't think Bradbury. Apparently, Bradbury was already infuriated by the changes they did make, which were not overly substantial. I mean, they weren't. They weren't small. They did make some significant changes, but you know, the the core elements of the story are still a hundred percent there. But yet, I I don't know. I don't know what my one thing would would be. I. Because the setting is good, like the time frame is good. You really couldn't do this setup of a carnival coming to a small town at many other times in history, maybe the Depression. But I don't think they wanted to go there. I don't think they had any interest in in this being a Depression-era Midwestern town. Um, Because that just opens up a whole other can of worms for what people want. You you could do that, but I, I don't think they were interested in doing that. But I, I guess if I did have one thing, it would really be to just lean into that darker tone. To just not even attempt to give it this, you know, rose gold Americana flavor and, you know, the the young man looking back on his life and wondering what happened next, you know, kind of thing. Like, I just just go hard into the, the horror elements. I think we needed to see more of the carnival on operation and how it was was touching people's lives right you know that you could tell they picked pillar characters that you could refer back to but you know really see how it was worming its way in how everybody was desperate to get to the carnival as fast as they possibly could so that they could find their dreams um and and then at the same time maybe you could explore a little bit of the mundanity of everyday life in a rural town and and how desperate you would feel to to get away to be offered that. And then that would set up the whole thing for Jim, right? The Jim wants to escape, right? I don't want to be stuck in this little town. I don't want to be like my dad. And, and, you know, maybe something like that would have worked more, but this is a film that riding the line between being truly horrific and scary and, and Disney is what kills it. Like that's what takes away its power. And, and, it's so divided from top to bottom. I don't know if you can divorce those two things anymore without just radically changing the story. But that's what I would have wanted to do, is just stick to your guns and make it a legitimate horror film that just happens to star a couple of kids.
1: I I, I think I came up with the only thing that might, might sell this movie a bit more to people is that we needed... An extra 20 minutes to develop two things. The relationship between Will and his dad and Will and Jim. Yeah. Because if if I had understood those conflicts a bit better, I think I would have been more willing to overlook some of the weaker parts of the film. like Some of the editing problems, some of the, you know, scripty stumbles um but we just don't have enough i don't know or understand enough about how will's dad feels about how charles feels Mm -hmm. and i don't really understand the connection these boys have to each other (laughs) i mean i understand childhood friends are childhood friends but it would have been nice to develop he's your
0: best friend yeah
1: um so i think that would have given the film enough sort of emotional thrust to overlook some of the more mechanical story missteps. Um, But that's what I thought.
0: No, I I agree with that a hundred percent. The, the characters in this film developed as they are and, and many of them, and they are fairly well developed for a film of this type and a film of this era we still need more, especially for me. I I think the one that I would lean into even more is the boys. Like we just need more time with them and to see them being boys. Right. Like I said, when the film started, I love that. It just kind of gets going like, Oh, the carnival is coming. We're here. That's our focus. But yet at the same time, maybe it would have benefited somewhat from a little bit more of a day in the life of, of Jim and will right. Seeing them, you know, sort of go around and do things together. Um,
1: and giving them slightly more realistic conflicts, because I don't, think, I don't think they were treated as maturely as they should have been. And that's something that Disney has been guilty of in, in a lot of movies. And then in other movies, they've excelled at it, um, where they have these really kind of sophisticated takes on a young person's mind. But it doesn't feel like this movie had it.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, the film at its core, it just feels messy. It just lacks cohesion, right? It's just, it's, it's sloppy, right? And I don't think necessarily because of any one element. Um, I'm sure the production problems and Disney demanding changes, I'm sure that created problems and issues with, with you know, scene transitions and, and how they assembled the film. I'm sure it did. But I think there are a couple of scenes that survive intact, like the library scene. Like that scene mm-hmm. feels pretty much complete um and and probably as it was originally shot part of why i believe that is because there's so many long takes in it like yeah. there's there are takes in it that can't that aren't really sliced up to try and create a different effect and that scene works super well you know so I, I think yeah just just cleaning that up trying desperately to to sort of build a more cohesive whole out of the characters and the work that they did is certainly a, a necessary thing um and the characters are good enough and likable enough that I think, yeah, that's that's sort of what we needed more time with just to get to know them so that when they they do get thrust into these crazy circumstances, we're really rooting for them and we understand the choices that they make, which we don't really get much insight into, which is unfortunate. So I guess we need to, to come down to the recommendation um, and a, an overall score for something wicked this way comes, which is a... I, personally i want to take it and give it a lot of credit because it is a film flawed though it may be is doing some really really cool stuff um and is anchored by some really great performances from price and robards and and even the two kids which i think you know their, their performances are really solid um, so for me, this this is a recommend. Uh, again, it's a tough one to get hold of at this point, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, you're you're going to have to do a bit of legwork to get a hold of a copy of this. At least, you know, ordering a piece of physical media off of Amazon. So if you're adverse to that idea, eh. um, but it's an altogether unique film experience, it and one that is shocking to see the Walt Disney name on. Uh, ultimately, I think that's what doomed it. It probably would have done better in anybody else's hands. But it's it's such a unique little film. It's It feels sort of small and well put together for what it is. Uh, it almost... This is going to seem kind of weird. It almost feels like one of those, like, Stephen King TV miniseries.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: like... That's what it feels like, or, or maybe like a really long episode of amazing stories. Yeah. That's what this feels like. And, and I know Rad, Ray Bradbury contributed a lot of stories and they adapted Ray Bradbury stories for that show. So that maybe that's where my brain is assembling it, but this feels like one of, one of those things, right? What's kind of low budget. It's a little chintzy. It's kind of a, it's kind of slapped together. Cause you know, Hey, we, we just did what we could, um, and And then it just doesn't land at the end, right? It just doesn't hit um and it as a result, I kind of have a little bit of love for it, right? It's kind of like the the three legged dog that you just kind of adore because he's kind of gimpy and you love him just a little bit anyway you know and this movie's kind of in that spot where you know i I'm probably gonna recommend it higher than it deserves just because it's it's a bit of that underdog because. I imagine nobody at Disney believed in this film and they were justified in that stance, but I'm glad it's in the world and I'm glad it's out there to be a thing that can be appreciated at some point. So so I'm going to put this at about an 83 for me, uh, 83%. Um, It's, it's almost into that like, yes, absolutely range, but it's, it's, it's definitely a little higher than average for me. It's, it's a good film. If you can find a copy of it, I think you'll enjoy it, especially if you're a, a fan of '80s sort of family slash horror films, right? If you like, uh, I'm not gonna say Gremlins because Gremlins is, is is a whole nother tier of excellent, but um, this is is definitely one of those little little projects that could, right? And and there's some cool moments in it. Cool score from James Horner too. I think it. it it's a fairly early one from him, and uh, I think it's a, a good one. It's it's got some striking moments. So yeah, that's it.
1: Well, for me, I wasn't far off. I put this at an eighty. I I also recommend this film, um, not because it's particularly well made, but because it's got two things that I really like. It has an interesting premise. I'm willing to work with a film that doesn't have a perfect script and script and doesn't have you know perfect production design if it's got an interesting premise Um, Mm. I also love all of the performances in this movie I think it's really they're exceptional
0: man for
1: it's it's in keeping with the quality of performance that I expect out of Disney live-action films especially the older ones like um, well we we brought up the fact that Mary Grace Canfield was in Pollyanna that's one of my favorite Disney films and it's actually a pretty heavy hitting tear-jerking kind of film. Oh, um, and I, I feel like the performances in this film are just so close to being that kind of classic Disney greatness. It's just the rest of the movie wasn't quite there yet. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's an, it's an 80 for me and I recommend it because it's from that interesting time in Disney's history. I am a big, big fan of just Disney history in general. So, you know, we don't get to see a whole lot. You know, Disney kind of disowns these films, yeah. um, and Disney's it disowns this more, part of its history. It's a much more conservative company now,
0: in terms of the films that it's willing to put its name on. Um, you know, not to say that there aren't still groundbreaking films coming out of Disney. They're, they're certainly doing their part, but there there is a there is a sanitation process that is done yeah. to Disney products that you know we would I don't think we would see something like this out of Disney um, modern Disney no one would even attempt it even though they they could probably I mean this in many ways feels like a film that was produced before they could really execute a lot of the ideas that needed to be executed Right, as far as the presentation of the carnival the special effects of the sequences uh, with the Dusk Witch and things like that a lot of that stuff feels like we could approach it now and probably with the technology that we have and some of the newer storytelling tools and, and CG and advanced camera work, we could do some, you could do some cool stuff with this story and make it really, really sing. But, you know, Disney's probably never going to let that happen. Right. If they're unwilling to even put it on Disney plus, then that's probably a sign. And <laughs> we should uh, start
1: a petition
0: <laughs> yeah, put it on
1: Disney Plus.
0: Uh, <laughs> I I need to look and see if the Black Hole is on Disney Plus. I think, I
1: think it, it is. is. I think um, it is because I was gonna watch it one night, and I fell asleep.
0: Um, because that, yeah, the it's it's definitely on there. But I mean that that is one that feels of this same era of like dark and weird, and we try to be a little funny. I mean, because the Black Hole has a. A robot voiced by Slim Pickens. <laughs> and I was like, "Howdy, y'all!" And <laughs> then it has a scene where Anthony Perkins gets his chest torn open by a blender. Yep. Right, like that's that's like this era of Disney, right? Like it's where where we have it's, the fun, friendly, happy robot, and then we have a man being impaled by blades.
1: What's well, it's, it's sort of it's yeah. sort of the company, you know in that uncertain time without the direction of Walt Disney. And Mm -hmm. now they seem to have circled back around to the ghost of Walt Disney, you know, overseeing everything and that kind of revisionist attitude that they take toward their own catalog of films. Unfortunately, this, this one is a victim of that revisionism. And that's sad.
0: Yeah. We just want to pretend like it didn't happen. Uh, when, Maybe you should, and maybe this because this is the kind of movie that is ripe for a remake. Like this yeah. is the kind of movie that should and they, be remade. They were going to do Hollywood. one. I think at one point, yeah, there was talk.
1: And probably the last thing I I meant to say something earlier. This movie has the bitchinest movie poster, maybe of any it's live action Disney Pretty film.
0: great, yeah. And and the uh the uh the text treatment on that poster so good The sort of hand crawled because i guess we didn't even mention that but the something wicked this way comes is a is a macbeth reference mm-hmm. you know by the pricking of my thumb something wicked this way comes you know one of shakespeare's classic you know lead-in lines for uh you know lead-in couplets i guess for a character to to uh to enter and it's it's just it's good. I mean, this is what Bradbury did. This is what he was excellent at: was congealing Boy, all of these weird elements into something that kind of worked.
1: And like the the name of the the book, you know, it's it's specifically the part in Macbeth bef- when he's visiting the witches in order to receive prophecies with all of his hopes and dreams in them. But it's mm-hmm. of course twisted because he doesn't really get what he wants. Right.
0: So, I mean, that's the kind of cohesion that you can always expect out of Bradbury yeah. and his yeah. work. And and he absolutely. Um, you know, plays that up, right? The, the loss and pain of the things that you believe you can't have but should. And, um, yeah, like I said, it's it's a great film. Uh, I, I think it stands up fairly well. It's not perfect. You're, you're in for a bumpy ride if you dive in. But uh, I think in many ways, just Jonathan Price and Jason Robards alone are kind of yeah. worth the price of admission because they're both doing stellar work here. Uh, work that at this point has been mostly forgotten um which is unfortunate uh, I'm glad that you know something like Rick and Morty can kind of poke back at this and say ah oh, hey you know we we know what this is we're aware of that but it, it's one of those movies that I I think if if it could get back out there right if it could show up on a thing like Disney plus and you know then Collider or something was like, hey weird movies on Disney plus to check out you know do you out something but you know like that's yeah. this is the kind of movie that actually would benefit from that kind of word of mouth because I think a lot of people, Modern audiences watching this movie now would probably find a lot to like in it, uh, which you know is why I think it's a, a recommend for sure.
1: I agree. All
0: right. Well, I guess we'll wrap up. Um, so where can you be found on social media, Catherine? Uh you've got big life things going on and uh, cool I, things happening. So uh hopefully, hopefully, yeah.
1: Um I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter, that's the best place. Very nice.
0: Um, I am at T Baskin on Twitter. And then of course, if you want to get both of us, it's at F theater. And if you need to email us for anything, it's at failure piece uh, at gmail.com. So we will be back next week with another discussion of a cinematic misfire, something that didn't quite work, but yet is still maybe worth our time. Hopefully it's either a failure piece Or it could be a piece of something else. We'll find out. All right. Have a great week and we will see you next time.